Hello and welcome to TV Watch, a new podcast from Digital TV Europe looking at the biggest news and trends in the worlds of broadcasting, streaming and everything else to do with the TV industry in Europe and further afield. I'm Jonathan Easton, Deputy Editor of Digital TV Europe and on today's show... We're a couple of weeks removed from the launch of HBO Max, AT&T's big play in the streaming space as it attempts to create a Netflix killer. The operator has invested heavily in the platform and spared no expense in wrestling its content back from third parties. But has it done enough to dethrone the king? Or is it, as analysts at Moffat Nathanson said, a quote, missed opportunity? With the streaming service back in the news this week, I chat with Sarah Henschel, Senior Research Analyst at Omdia, about the launch and the wider state of play in the US streaming market. And after that, I chat with Richard Middleton, editor of our sister publication TBI, about incoming BBC Director General Tim Davey, what he brings to the role and what he needs to do to steer the course through the most tumultuous time in the broadcaster's history. But first... And what they have created is unique, HBO Max. And what you've seen here today, I don't think is like anything else. This is not Netflix. This is not Disney. This is uniquely HBO Max. AT&T and WarnerMedia is a powerful combination. And these two companies together have an amazing financial profile. This company, as you just saw, just over the next three years, is going to invest $4 billion in HBO Max. There aren't many companies that can make that type of a commitment and that type of investment and at the same time grow revenue, EPS, and cash flow. That was AT&T chairman and CEO Randall Stevenson summing up AT&T's commitment to HBO Max at its launch event back in October 2019. Back in a world before we were all stuck inside with nothing to do aside from watching TV and baking banana bread. But now we're six months down the line and HBO Max is here with 10,000 hours of content from the likes of Let me take a breath. Warner Brothers, New Line, DC, CNN, TNT, TBS, True TV, Turner Classic Movies, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Crunchyroll, Rooster Teeth, Looney Tunes, and, of course, HBO. And while the old adage of content is king may be appropriate when describing this behemoth of a content library, HBO Max has had a bit of a rocky start. Confusion over the service's naming and its availability, along with a top-tier price tag, had led to analysts being highly critical of the launch. US firm Moffat Nathanson called it a, quote, missed opportunity and said that it has been a chaotic launch with a mess of brands. This hasn't been helped by Warner deciding to effectively abandon its release schedule of an episode a week in favour of Netflix-style content dumps. And this is without even mentioning the latest controversy surrounding the company's decision to pull the iconic and racially charged classic movie Gone with the Wind from the service amid the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests throughout the US and around the world. Joining me now from her home in Austin, Texas, is Sarah Henschel, Senior Research Analyst at Omdia. Hi, Sarah. Before we properly get into talking about HBO Max, why don't you give a brief intro into yourself and what you look at as a researcher? Sure. My name is Sarah Henschel. I'm a senior analyst at Omdia. I cover North American and LATAM streaming, OTT, and digital services. So I cover transactional video as well as SVODs and virtual pay TV providers. I also previously was at NBCU in digital distribution as well. 
obviously it's a couple of weeks now since HBO Max has launched and the dust has settled a little bit. And the general critical consensus is that the launch was kind of fumbled. A lot of analysts have either been going as far as to say it's chaotic. Uh, others are saying that it's been just a bit of a missed opportunity. Do you feel that that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I agree. I think there have been some missed opportunities I don't think it's completely fumbled to the point of no return, um, but I do think that just in terms of messaging out to the consumers, they are still quite confused on what the offering is and especially how it differentiates from other services like HBO Now and HBO Go. Being in the US, I think everyone's still a bit shy or confused on what they have access to what do they have to pay for is it automatically free to them so i agree that yeah it's been a bit of a, a confusing launch for them especially mm. compared to others who have already launched on the branding side of things you mentioned we've got hbo now hbo go do you think that especially given the fact that this is so much more than just hbo and everything in there do you think they should have done something to capitalize more on on the library rather than just calling it another hbo product yeah i think honestly naming it hbo kind of detracts from the value that they're trying to bring i know on their warner investment day they showed lots of spots and videos of all of this great content across their brands and you know when I was watching that I was like oh actually this is some good stuff but in the way that they're presenting it at launch right now I feel like they're missing some of that breadth that they have so I think that they need to work to bring in more of that library and network content um, so people even realize that it's in there. But a big focus as well as that milestone with the 10,000 hours of content is the idea that HBO Max is a more human service than things like Netflix, where everything is is provided to you through algorithm recommendations, which are often, you know, at, at the best of time, they can seem very accurate. And a lot of the time, it just seems like a weird scattershot approach. There's the meme that I've seen countless times of uh, you've watched Bugs Life, so we think you're like human centipede, just tagging <laughs> there. Um, yeah. How important do you think that that focus on human creation is versus the algorithms of other services? Yeah, I think it it could really be a strong core competency for HBO Max. I think it's really valuable, um, especially one, one thing I think is neat that they're having celebrities sort of curate what they like to watch or, you know, Zac Efron showcasing here are my favorite movies and I think that's something that's unique and new to the streaming space that is intriguing like I'd, I'd love to see what Zac Efron's favorite <laughs> movies or tv shows are so I think that that brings a different element that's unique and new and will keep consumers engaged and I agree that sometimes in the world we're in right now with streaming there's too much curation to where people might not be exploring outside of um, certain genres or types of content that they're being fed. So it really, you know, opens people up to finding content that they maybe wouldn't have seen before. So 
I think that that's really strong and something that they should continue to lean into. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. The, the idea that I came up with would be something like you've watched Barry on HBO and Bill Hader's got a profile and it's got clips of him talking about the uh, here are the shows and movies that influenced us in making Barry. And yeah. oh, just so happens that they're all available to watch on HBO Max. So it keeps yeah. you within that ecosystem. Yeah, and I think that there's so much great content that's already been made that, you know, everyone's very focused on what's what's hot right now, what's new and original, which is great. But there's so many good movies and TV shows of the past that get forgotten if they don't make the top 10 lists or what have you. So this is definitely a new way to bring back content that is still good that just maybe has been buried over the past couple of years. So we, we've kind of established what HBO Max is. Despite its its kind of stumbling start, shall we say, which, if any, streaming service is most threatened in the market? I think that it mostly butts up against uh, services maybe like Showtime or Stars, maybe CBS All Access. I think it falls within that mid-tier streaming service where it's you know quite popular and has strong content, but it's not Amazon. Netflix or Hulu, those have been the big three for some time. So I feel like it falls into that tier right below where it's got a lot of good content, but isn't one of the must-haves all the time for every mainstream consumer. You're saying it's it's more of a mid-tier streamer, as it were, but it obviously has this top-tier pricing. Is that right. working against it? I think but so. I think the pricing is very challenging for HBO Max because they can't go under 14.99 because HBO is already at 14.99 so they put themselves in a tough position cuz you can't undercut the content of what HBO already had um and 14.99 is quite high relative to the US market i mean you see Hulu and Disney and all these other things in the and Apple starting at $5 ranging up to maybe 9 or $10 so that's really the main pricing range that I think people are okay with right now. So it feels hard to put something above that. The only other streamer that's there is Netflix. And, you know, Netflix is, was the one Netflix that started it at all. Yeah. yeah. So you can't really compare yourself there. So I think it does make it challenging for them to get new subscribers, but by bundling it, they have so many partnerships and bundles across all of the AT&T and HBO universe um so hopefully if they can build that up it'll provide a solid user base mm, that was something i also wanted to ask was about uh whether they're actually targeting new customers or whether they're just you viewing it as as a value add for existing hbo customers who are who are subscribed through their local cable or even through their you know big cable yeah. provider. yeah i think it is a value add um especially just because that has been AT&T's one of their bread and butter in the past. But I think also if they can um, get people used to using HBO Max and then as, you know, cord cutting is just getting stronger and stronger in the U.S. So if people have maybe had access to HBO Max in the past and then they cancel their cable subscription, maybe it'll be one of the first ones that they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go resubscribe to that because I liked having that content. So I think it's good for them to utilize HBO Max across all of their 
um, customer bases so that if they leave different pieces of the AT&T world, they'll maybe come back to HBO Max later. There's so many, I think they were saying it was something like 10 million um, people who already have access to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, the big news ahead of the launch wasn't so much all these people that already have access to um, HBO Max, but the people who we're going to be missing out who have Roku or Amazon devices. How right. how much of a blow do you think it was not having those distribution deals in place in time? I think it's a big a big blow. I mean, it's Amazon has kind of revealed that that's all, around five million customers of theirs that are losing out on upgrading to HBO Max who had HBO Now through Amazon. So it's it shows that HBO is really focusing on getting those direct um, subscribers rather than those who are going through these channels. Like they really want to focus on getting the most revenue from consumers by having them subscribe directly or who have appropriate uh, rev share deals through partnerships. So um, it's interesting because I feel like HBO's HBO Max is really playing hardball. Like they want to get as much revenue out of this as possible because it's a little bit of all their eggs in one basket of their future. They need this to succeed um, in the, the future of streaming and cord cutting. So I think it really puts them at a disadvantage not being on Am- Amazon and Roku at launch. But I would assume that in the next few months, they'll hopefully be able to work something out just because, you know, consumers, they don't want to be hopping out of platforms to go find your content. People assume that if I go on my smart TV or my games console or my Roku, like whatever you're on, you just assume that you'll have access to everything. So it feels like a loss for anyone to not have their applications everywhere at this point. It's just, you can't, it creates too much friction, especially if you're trying to grow fast. You you seem confident that those deals will be implemented in the coming months. I think so. I mean, I thought they would figure it out maybe the day before launch and then I was wrong on that so maybe it won't happen and they'll let it go but it's just it's a lot of consumer friction to let go on forever but something we're also expecting to see maybe in a bit of a a longer timeline is an ad supported tier how long do you think it will be until this is introduced and do you think that if the initial take up of hbo max isn't to their satisfaction that at&t will push it forward i know that there's been rumblings that it'll be in 2021 but i think you're right that if they're not if there's not enough uptake originally that they'll try to push it to later in this year in 2020. But to be honest, I feel like it's, it just feels like it's a little slapped together last minute if they're just trying to rush it into the market. You know, if they wanted to create an AVOD, why didn't they just do it all at launch? I feel like when Disney launched Disney Plus and Apple came out, you know, it put pressure on Peacock and HBO Max to be like, okay, when are you coming to market? What are you going to offer? What's going to be good? Um, so I feel like HBO Max especially kind of had to just throw what they had together quickly. And now that they're thinking, oh, maybe, oh, Peacock's doing AVOD, maybe we should do AVOD. Um, it, it just feels a little rushed. So hopefully it'll be cohesive and not another confusing element for consumers. But I think it, it might save them to do it because, you know, Hulu has seen 
great success with their Avod platform. And I think Peacock will also do well, too. The interesting thing with Peacock is that when it was initially announced, I thought the structure of it looks a bit confusing. HBO Max, it's $15, you know, what you're getting. Whereas with Peacock, it's got the three different tiers, doesn't it? It's got free mm-hmm. tier and then a, an ad-supported tier at like $5 and then a mm-hmm. slow ad-free tier at something like $10 Ten, a month. Yeah. But that seems to be the way forward. And I think, you know, with Hulu, what I've seen is that they're, the consumers that are on the ad-supported tier versus the Hulu ad-free tier can actually create higher ARPU or bring in more revenue than those who are, who are subscribing to the ad-free tier. So it's a proven model. And I think even though cord cutting is big, the number of ads that are shown on ad-supported services is so much lower compared to pay TV ad loads. So I think people are willing to to go into AVOD and it is something that we'll see a lot more of in the coming couple years. So I think, I think it's a strong play, but it is hard to navigate adding it on or tacking it on later after you've shown your consumers one version of your service. So we'll see. So heading up HBO Mac, uh, Bob Greenblatt, who's the he's been in the job for about a little over a year now as chairman of Warner Media, formerly at NBC. If if he was to give you a call and say, Sarah, <laughs> what would what should we do with HBO Max? What would you say to him? Hmm. Well, I'm happy to speak to Bob and he <laughs> needs. Um, but I would say I think content wise, they're on the right track. I think it's compelling. But I would say to him to cut out and make the process through which people getting make the process to get HBO Max seamless. I think they need to clean up and (laughs) deal with the HBO Go and HBO Now situations, clear that up. And they have so much star power and talent in their content. They need to- They've got Elmo. Yeah, I know. Once you have Elmo, you're set, right? They need to use that to explain to people what HBO Max is. I mean- Sure, that costs money and time, but they need a, a cohesive play to showcase why should I get HBO Max on top of Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu or whatever. And I think that's something which is uh, interesting, which Quibi did. They had their big ad campaign around the Super Bowl of what is yeah. Quibi and all of this. And I think that even though initial signs are that consumers aren't picking up what they're putting down, I think most people get what the service is which is evidently not necessarily the case with HBO Max. Yeah I think people get Quibi now and just don't want it (laughs) versus like they probably want people have always liked HBO so people probably want HBO Max it's just they don't get it. We've mentioned so many different streaming services we've seen you know Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, the, the established names, Disney, Apple have popped up in the in in the tail end of 2019 now we've got hbo max and we've got peacock coming out we've got a streaming service from a a big streaming service from viacom cbs promised has the u.s market reached a saturation point you know this is gonna be maybe a controversial opinion but i don't think so i think people thought it was saturated 
even before Disney Plus launched. And people are people are subscribing. Consumers are showing up. They they want the services. It's almost more relieving to be able to pick and choose, I think, what you want um, versus being tied to a, a two-year contract with a pay TV subscriber. I like that I can, you know, oh, if I want to just have Disney Plus when The Mandalorian's on, I'll subscribe for a couple months, turn that off, maybe switch over to Stars or whatever, Showtime, CBS, um, the Viacom product. I think there's... it. It's suited well to younger audiences, but there will need to be bundling and sort of packaging created for people who maybe want to cut the cord, but they don't want to deal with, you know, knowing what to subscribe to. So I think there's still a gap in that market and Amazon channels and Apple channels, they try to do that, but it's still, it's still a little hard to piece together so I think that needs to come to play but I don't think it's too saturated I think it's just the way we're moving and it's kind of like it's kind of like all of the you know cable is a package of channels that people buy into and now it's just those channels are moving online and now you need to figure out how to bundle them hopefully it stays cheaper for the consumers in the long run as time goes on prices will go up for the streaming services but I like that it's cheaper and you're not tied to contracts for long periods of time. So it sounds like the new normal is an awful lot like the old normal, really. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just a repackaging of the same thing. It's all the same studios and creators. They're just feeding it to you in a different way. The more things change, the more they say the same, as, uh, as the old saying goes. Yeah, true. <laughs> Before we say goodbye. Just want to give you the opportunity to plug yourself, uh, plug anything in particular that you're working on, anything you've got coming up. So like I said before, I'm an analyst at Omdia. We offer technology research across a wide gamut of topics. So feel free to reach out and I can point you to our take and our thoughts on the future of the tech industry, whether it's streaming or AVOD, advertising, games, um, happy to chat with anyone on all of those topics and if people want to find you where can they do so yeah find me on linkedin my name is sarah henschel um or feel free to email me at sarah.henschel at omdia.com great well thank you very much sarah and yeah. i'm sure we'll hear from you again soon perfect thanks thanks Before we go on, I just wanted to let you know about an upcoming free webinar that we are going to be hosting on the 23rd of June. As you've just heard, streaming is the future of the industry and it's only going to become more prominent as viewers continue to cut the cord. But many platforms are seeking to differentiate themselves from the Netflixes and the HBO Maxes as thematic streaming services. Join Digital TV Europe editor Stuart Thompson and guests including Machine Pro CEO Matthew Wilkinson for an in-depth analysis and discussion about thematic OTT services based on the results of the Digital TV Europe annual industry survey and original research by Omdia. 
For more information, head to the DTVE website at digitaltveeurope.com, that's digitaltveeurope.com, and sign up for what's sure to be an excellent free webinar on June the 23rd. Now, back to the show. After six months of intense speculation, the BBC has appointed its new Director General in the form of BBC Studios boss Tim Davey, who will replace outgoing DG Tony Hall on September 1st. Joining me now to discuss the appointment is Richard Middleton, editor of Digital TV Europe's sister magazine TBI, who has written an excellent profile on Davey and his background over on their website. Rich, who is Tim Davey and why... Why was he settled on as the right man for the job? Uh, well, Tim Davey is the CEO of BBC Studios, so the commercial arm um, of the BBC. Oftentimes, when people think of the BBC, they think a very UK-focused uh, public broadcaster. But in fact, he's got a giant commercial arm as well, which sells programming all over the world and increasingly has partnerships all over the world. So it takes states and production companies, it sells shows to broadcasters in the US, it partners with uh, Chinese streamers, uh, US companies like Quibi to produce shows. Um, it has a broad range of operations. Davey has been running that, uh, that side of the BBC for uh, seven years. So he took that over in 2013. And in some ways, I mean, he was quite uh, the obvious choice for, uh, for the BBC to pick. He was up against a stalwart of the BBC in terms of Charlotte Moore. Uh, she heads up the content side of the UK public broadcaster. So she has had huge experience in terms of the shift to iPlay, putting a lot of content on there and trying to uh, distribute content to, to especially younger viewers uh, via that service. He managed to beat, beat her to the job, uh, which some people questioned, obviously, because Again, we've got another white male director general of the BBC. Um, lots of people were calling for a change, uh, and lots of people hoped that, that Charlotte Moore might have got the job. But as it turned out, the BBC decided to plump for the uh, commercial acumen of, of David. There were a couple of other um, competitors as well, of course. Um, Amazon's chief uh, in the UK, Doug Gurr, uh, was highly rated. He was in the running. Uh, he previously headed up well, he's headed up operations for the retail giant in the UK since 2016, uh, and he previously worked for a company in China. One of the quartets was uh, Will Lewis, the former CEO of Wall Street Journal publisher Dow Jones. He had been a leading contender in the race as well. He was down to the final four by all reports, but he was widely seen to have lost ground recently after he was linked with the phone hacking scandal uh, during his time at News UK, um, which counted against him. We'll talk about the the optics of the situation later on, but I know that there was initial reports that the BBC was considering basically splitting Hall's job because he was the you know director general and editor in chief, and there was a reports I'd seen that that to placate both parties they were going to you know split the and you know have her more on the content side and have him on more of the business side, but that didn't really seem to come to fruition. We're yet to see to what happens in terms of the fallout of this decision. Obviously, these are, are big names. Uh, people don't put themselves forward to these jobs unless they think they can you know, generally get them. And it tends to be the case that if they don't get them, then they move on to pastures new fairly soon. Uh, Charlotte Moore is highly rated in the business. 
people like her. She's a tough deal maker, but she also seems to have a, a finger on the pulse in terms of the production community um, and also you know, an outlook that isn't just on the UK. Increasingly, the BBC is a small fish uh, in a pond, you know, on the global scale that contains, you know, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, huge companies. Uh, and despite the licence fee and, and all of the cash that that brings in, it pales in insignificance to the amount of money that, that some of these really big US-based tech companies have to play with. So she was certainly... Uh, yeah, in the running, and, and and lots of people, I think, down to the last minute, thought you know it was basically a race between her and her and Tim Davy. But but Davy has uh, beaten her to the post and won it by a head. In previous conversations, you'd mentioned that he has uh, an an American approach to business, as it were. Do you think that, and combined with his previous commercial history, you know, he worked at Pepsi. Do you think that's kind of that was one of the swaying factors, given that the BBC is in such a poor financial state at the moment. Yeah, there's obviously been a lot made uh, of the considerable market savvy uh, shown by by Tim Davey. Obviously, whilst he was marketing manager for Europe at Pepsi, that seems to come up time and again, but that was probably a decade ago, well, well more than a decade ago now. Um, And it's, for me at least, it's the leadership of BBC Studios that is the really interesting part of his recent career. He's turned what was essentially a distribution company into a multifaceted organisation. He is a very slick operator, certainly. And when you interview him, he knows his lines, he knows the messaging of the other cross. He gets the message across in pretty rapid fire. Uh, and he doesn't really suffer fools. He, you know, he knows what he wants doing. Interesting to look at some of the deals. I mean, since he took over BBC Studios, obviously previously known as BBC Worldwide, so since his sort of under his tenure, as it were, there have been huge changes. He's he's up to the contribution apart from anything else that BBC Studios makes to to its parent broadcaster. To I mean, last year it was 250 million, uh, so 320 million dollars, which is a sizable amount. He's also moved into distribution. He's also moved into sorry. He's also moved into uh, lots more partnerships. So he's producing. They've got a, a BBC Studios arm is producing for third parties. That was a deal struck in partnership with the BBC. BBC had to give up some of its quotas uh, in, in relation to that. He's also launched streamers, of course. Uh, BBC Studios have partnered with ITV Studios to launch Brickbox internationally. So we've got that over North America, recently expanded into um, Australia. And there's also, of course, the, the, the UK version, which is a slightly different model. Um, BBC only has a 10% stake in that. Uh, so it is a yeah, slightly different product. But the point is... Davey has overseen quite a substantial change uh, in terms of what studios does. It isn't just a distribution uh, a sales organisation anymore. It's very much looking to partner with companies. It, it works with Quibi to produce programming. It works very much with a lot of the big Chinese broadcasters and streamers uh, to get shows off the ground there. It's, it's taking stakes from production companies in the UK with a view to sort of growing them as part of a BBC public broadcaster remit as well. So... Davey will be taking all of that experience uh, and and all of those initiatives. They'll be in his mind, certainly, I suspect, as he, as he takes the top job uh, over at Broadcasting House. So with with the BritBox, at the moment, it seems as though it's very much, you know, you look at the structure of the thing, it's dominated by ITV, and it seems as though it's more of a 
an experimental hobby than anything else for the BBC. Do you expect that now that Davies at the top, do you expect the BBC to kind of ramp up its involvement with BritBox or do you think he's going to really focus on iPlayer? I think in the UK, I think one of the focus will always be on iPlayer. The premise for BritBox in the UK was also, it was always very different uh, to the international version. You know, BBC has a 10% stake in the UK version um, and ITV is, 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 the, is, is by far the biggest shareholder there. It's got the biggest stake. It's, it's sort of its, its baby, as it were. It's much more for the BBC. It's almost, you know, it's an extension of what it used to do with its DVDs and its box sets. Right. Right? It's a way if you watch, watch you know, that sort of content, um, you sign to Brickbox. Internationally, I think it's a very different beast. Um, I mean, we speak to, yeah, the guys at BBC Studios, when you speak to people like Paul Dempsey, who heads up global distribution, um, they've always been pretty adamant that they're not going to roll out BBC, uh, Brickbox as a sort of, as a pan-global operation in the foreseeable future. It's going to be you know, tailored to certain markets, uh, and that's pretty much what we've seen. We've seen it go to English language markets, North America uh, and Australia, it's it's not really gone much further yet. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind, I mean, BBC Studios has a huge number of deals already in place across the world. So it's got natural history deals with Discovery. It's got uh, you know, its own sort of streamers and its own, um, its own linear programming blocks on networks and, and, and SVODs across um, Asia. It's operating, uh, you know, BBC First is a linear channel that takes a lot of a lot of uh, drama from the BBC and a lot of drama from BBC Studios, often in first window rights deals. So to to sort of expand, yeah, Brickbox outside of, sort of where it is at the moment, maybe we'll see a couple more launches um, in the next couple of years. But I think it would be surprising to see sort of Brickbox really be rolled out as any sort of, sort of you know, international competitor to a Netflix or an Amazon. I don't think that's really on the cards at the moment. So you've kind of established his credentials and what he's done at BBC Studios. Um, but obviously that trip to Broadcast House, as you say, is 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 a much heftier task, one which is a lot more visible. I know that in your in your piece you said that it's the BBC Studios has been largely uh, ignored by the UK public, but I think that most He's, he's, he's not a household name by any means, but people will understand Tony Hall as top dog at the BBC and anything that the BBC does wrong, it falls on him. And in particular at the moment is the ongoing to and fro, which has kind of been sidelined about the licence fee with the government. And we've got the pandemic at the moment, so those discussions have fallen by the wayside but even before that we had seen reports that the government had drafted a plan for the BBC to scrap the license fee and go to a subscription model how do you think that Davey is going to handle all of that? I think it will be fascinating I mean it's worth bearing in mind that he has kind of uh, had his hands on the roll in some capacity previously he was acting director general from November 2012 until uh, April uh, 2013. Um, so he he has a little bit of understanding, probably more understanding than, than some people going into the role of, of what it entails. But certainly it is a much more public-facing uh, role for him than, he, than he's sort of been used to at BBC Studios. 
and and obviously it's a very different operation. He was you when you're in charge of the commercial arm of the BBC, which has a very international outlook, you're expected to be very commercial. The public broadcaster side of the BBC that faces the UK and that all UK citizens pretty much uh, with a TV pay into is a different beast and, and the types of situations he will face will be quite different. Uh, the licence fee obviously is, is one of the major problems um, as it always is. It, I mean, it's, it is the ongoing problem and the ongoing issue uh, for every director general. It's the golden goose that, that lays the eggs but you have to keep the goose alive and if you're against a Tory government uh, which at the moment it seems at least in the past couple of months uh, it seems as it's kind of been uh, holding a gun to the BBC's head in some ways, at least prior to this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there's going to be some very tough questions in terms of how it negotiates its next royal charter, and that will then, of course, determine how it funds itself. I mean, the alternative to a licence fee, you know, the, it's quite hard for sort of someone going in to the BBC to, to say anything but we want to keep the licence fee because it is by far and away the best option for for many people in the business, not just people working for the BBC, but people people who are you know, commissioned shows, UK producers, um, most of them are in, in favour of the licence fee because it, it provides a huge pot of money to an organisation that can then spend that money and Obviously, the BBC has its issues and it is sometimes accused of misspending money, perhaps, and it doesn't spend it most, as wisely as it could. But, but by and large, it's seen as it's quite, it's a vital tool within the, uh, within the, sort of the ecosystem of the UK production landscape. So I should think David will go in there and he will not want to drop any hints or mm. uh, anyone with anything other than ideas that he 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 just wants to keep hold of the license for he wants to you know keep that as the way that the bbc is funded whether or not that turns out to be the case is a different matter of course we've had as you, as you allude to we've had uh, suggestions that a subscription service could be introduced in some way perhaps i mean it's quite early to sort of you know to explore how that would look and certainly there is i think there will be a lot of pushback uh, from, from BBC and, and from Baby, or if that was the case, the the mechanics of getting something like that to work would be would be huge. Saying that, a license fee is it feels outdated, um, and, and increasingly so in this world of you know monthly flexible subscriptions. There is certainly an argument, especially from younger viewers uh, who perhaps don't use as much of the, the BBC's content as uh, as as the older demographic. Uh, there's a, there's an argument as to why should they be paying you know 150 quid every every year to uh, to get content that they're not actually watching. Um, so that is it's an obstacle course that he will have to um, he will have to take on. I mean it's interesting to look at some of some of the recent sort of developments. Um, there was a lot of talk one of the UK one of the BBC's UK channels BBC Four, which is quite a niche. Uh, operation really aims is fairly art skewing, um, shows some dramas as well. It was actually the channel that brought the killing to the UK uh, initially um, all those years ago. But there's, there has been a lot of pressure on that uh, over recent weeks. And one of the things that came out recently was that potentially it could be rolled out as a global streaming service. Um, if that is the case, obviously BBC Studios would, would partner up. You assume that well, Studios would be one of the operations, one of the 
uh, conduits for, for, that, for that channel to sort of go international on an ethical basis, if that were the case. Um, so those sorts of deals, you know, it's worth sort of bearing in mind how that sort of deal might play out and, and how that might influence Davies' thinking um, in terms of funding the BBC in the longer term. We've seen, obviously, uh, we talked about the government and a hostility there between the the top brass at the Beeb and Number Ten Downing Street, and you know, on, on the license fee, everything from from these existential decisions, which you know, going one way or the other, to even the announcement of Hall's resignation, where the BBC would typically let the government know more than 10 minutes before announcing that he was stepping down. I mean, he'll have to try and patch up some of this relationship, won't he? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, there's there's been a lot of talk in terms of uh, perhaps Davy is more of a similar character to to some of those um, politicians that, that uh, are currently in charge of the country in terms of his, you know, he's a very commercially savvy chap. Uh, he's got a lot of experience in business. Um, he's Oxbridge educated as well, which which obviously helps. Um, so I think, yeah, he'll be going in there. He'll come in with some degree of a, a clean slate uh, and he will try to work with the government as closely as possible. I mean, it's, it's an inordinately difficult task for any director general because you're trying to balance um, reporting on the, the government at the same time as, as trying to work with the government in, in, in some ways to uh, ensure your organisation's future. Um, that balance is, is always d- difficult, so I, I don't think there's any chance that Davy's going to have it any easier than any of his predecessors. If anything, he's probably going to have it tougher because the discussion over the licence fee is only going to get hotter uh, and alternatives to, to, to funding uh, are going to have to be found in one, uh, one way or another. Um, and it will be, if he lasts that long, it will be up to him to to find those answers uh, and those solutions. They've all, they've talked about reform, 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 reform has been the buzzword. Even even the BBC in itself, in uh, W1A, has the kind of wink nudge presentation of what the BBC is, and you know, middle class people talking about their Brompton bikes and everything. But they've already announced that they're moving a lot of jobs outside of London. So you you feel that. Davy is kind of the right person to carry on this program of reform. I mean, if you were looking for a reforming, in terms of sort of the reform, it's fundamentally the reform question, probably. Um, lots of people would say they should have gone with Charlotte Moore. Um, you know, they should have made a, a clear, you know, backing uh, a, a female DG would have been uh, probably would have been the real reforming move. They haven't mm. gone for that. Um, and there's probably a multitude of reasons for that in some ways, um, depending on your viewpoint. I mean, you know, if, if, if you want somebody who has sort of an understanding of the international market, then you know, David probably is the man for that. The reforms, I mean, he, he's, you know, he's talked about reform in, in his uh, in the quotes that we've had so far from him, from what he said so far, his memos to staff. It's all been reform, as you say. Um, <clears throat> so clearly, Tony Hall, I think most people would look back on and say he's been... He's, he's done pretty well in terms of the situation that he's been given. But Davy, <coughs> Davy is going to have to take that reform a whole lot further, not least on the diversity question, which is a, cons- it's a consistent and a constant uh, in TV uh, ecosystem. It's got to be improved, BAME representation, all of that across the board in terms of 
uh, production companies, the execs, the talent, that has got to improve. And, and I think nobody accepts that um, and action is needed. There's also the question of youth uh, and, and you know, the reform of the organisation in terms of attracting younger people. That comes, I mean, that becomes a commercial question as well, because if you're not attracting younger people, young people are paying a large amount of the licence fee, and then if you're, if you're not attracting that demographic, uh, obviously that demographic is going to have issues about paying um, an annual subscription, as it were, to, to the BBC. So these are all issues, yeah, he's going to have to deal with. Um, the, I mean, you know, it remains to be seen what reform he's going to bring in. But it, I think speaking to some execs, well, most execs seem to think he's going to come in with a, a, you know, a strategy of uh, change and, and he will look to you know, transform the organisation as much as possible. It's made strides in moving people out of, you know, out of London, as you say. So we're trying to get more of a representation of what people think outside of the metropolitan elite. But it, it still has a long way to go. And obviously, especially at the moment, the representation on screen, representation behind the camera, representation of people working in the industry that is something the BBC because it's a public broadcaster has to lead on and Tim Davey will be tasked with that and there's no shying away from the fact that he has uh, he has yeah big reforms that will have to be made uh, on that regard. Yeah and they, and they need to be almost extra visible with all this given the Samira Ahmed tribunal recently um, and reports are showing that there is a distinct pay cap um, that men are earning about 10% more on average for doing the same jobs as women at the BBC. And then we've also got the representation issue that you were saying saying about on screen behind the screen. So there's a, a big PR job that needs to be done there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a PR job and... and reworking of the organisation in some ways to deliver a reform. I mean, that's what he's promised. Um, so yeah, we can wait to see if, if that's what he delivers. Great. Well, I think we are just about out of time. Um, before I wrap this up, do you want to plug anything that you're working on? Anything you have got coming up with Team TBI? We are. Well, we continue, obviously, to, to cover huge amounts uh, on the effects of coronavirus. The uh, yeah the ongoing issues that that's provided uh, for everybody so lots of coverage there. We've also launched uh, TBI talks, so these are online uh, discussions which you can watch on demand if you can't catch them live. Uh, so we've already run a couple. One was looking at a post-lockdown landscape, so how to build production company, how you can uh, prepare for when lockdown comes down in its entirety, and, and how you can make sure you're off and running. Uh, as soon as possible. We also had one uh, exploring opportunities, not just in the UK, but internationally. Uh, and the next one we've got planned for a couple of weeks is exploring how uh, we, we're going to speak to some of the leading uh, operators out in Asia. So some of the channel operators and some of the streaming, uh, the regional streamers out there to find out, because they're a little bit ahead of the curve, we're going to find out what they've done, how they've reacted um, so far to, to what the pandemic's thrown at them. And, and, and again, some of the international opportunities uh, that, that they've got going. So uh, plenty going on here, and obviously, obviously, and obviously, we have uh, our daily news uh, and, and lots of feature material. So um, yeah, do make sure you check in at tbrvision.com. So that's our show. 
Thank you to my guests Sarah Henschel from Omdia and Richard Middleton from TBI. And thank you for listening to this, the first episode of TV Watch from Digital TV Europe. If you like the show, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice as this is a great way of helping new people find the show and to just help it grow into something that can actually be a real big part of Digital TV Europe. My name is Jonathan Easton and you can follow me on Twitter at EastJohnEast or get in touch with me via email at jonathan.easton at informa.com. You can find Digital TV Europe at Digital TV Europe on Twitter, as the title would suggest, and at digitaltveurope.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter that will keep you up to speed with all the latest goings on in the TV industry. Thanks again for listening. Bye bye.